0: You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace.
1: everybody. Welcome to our February 1st science carbon removal newsroom. We will be talking about a very recent report that was led by the University of Oxford Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment called the State of Carbon Dioxide Removal. The authors call it the first global assessment of the field and talked about the gaps that needed to be closed to scale carbon removal. The report is 101 pages and it covers what currently exists in CDR, the research landscape, existing policy support, and the gap between current plans and what will be needed to reach climate goals. It contained both some good news, CDR is scaling fast and managed forests are doing a lot of draw down already, but also some bad because as is a recurring theme within the climate sustainability world, we're not on track to have enough. So today, we'll do an overview with our science panelist, Dr. Jane Zelikova. Thanks, Jane, for Thanks. joining us. Yay. And, yeah, I'm yeah. here. And our uh, CRN producer, Asa Kamer.
2: Hi, Radhika. Hi, Jane. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, not just producer, but Asa is really kind of the, he does the initial rating of everything, so <laughs> he's very knowledgeable in the CDR space. He really is. It he doesn't give himself nearly enough credit, Jane. Yeah. I agree.
1: Um. So, Jane, let's just start off with you. Um, the authors found that the scientific research into CDR is growing. It's doubling every three to four years. so what are did what did they point out as the hot CDR research topics right now?
0: Yeah, they uh, this is so interesting. I've been kind of curious because, like, if you're in the space, it feels like there's just a lot happening, but you never know if it's because the echo chamber you're in or if that's real. So it was actually really interesting to see a quantitative analysis and see that indeed research in carbon dioxide removal is definitely growing. And even though it's a really tiny portion of the overall research in climate, the fact that it's doubling every two to three years is um, is a lot. The really hot topics, at least in terms of what the these researchers found were in uh, the topics of biochar, soil carbon sequestration, and uh, a bit on kind of reforestation and forest CDR in general. Um, and then, a, you know, a smaller portion, but a growing portion focused on more engineered novel solutions that they refer to as novel CDR in the report. And those include things like direct air capture, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, um, enhanced mineralization, ocean alkalization. So those are kind of the the things that don't have as much research going on, but that's certainly those topics are also increasing.
1: So Jane, as somebody who is in academia, curious if you had a sense of why certain areas maybe had more focus than others. Is it just time scale that the engineered are earlier or you know what what's your thinking about that?
0: Yeah, I think it's a matter of what you're building, sort of like we you know we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, it's it's the body of knowledge that we're building on top of. So things like biochar, um, soil carbon sequestration, and afforestation or reforestation, they're 80% of the CDR literature today, and that's in part because we have a large body of literature on those topics already. You know, soil science isn't new, uh, studying forests isn't new, uh, and the sort of the fact that the natural sciences in general are kind of playing a really big role here is not surprising. Uh, Natural scientists tend to be really interested in things like environmental change and climate So um, the interests sort of align and we have a large body of of scholarship that we're building on top of, whereas the more novel things like director capture, et cetera, they're pulling in disciplines like chemistry, like sort of novel engineering, et cetera, topics that may uh, not have been historically aligned with climate change, but are now becoming very well aligned. And there's a lot of kind of first innovation and discovery that has to be made in those areas because they're very new. So it's like the body of scholarship you're building upon is just a lot shallower. So I think it's it's an interesting kind of, it's an interesting difference. 80% is a really big difference, 80 to 20. So, but I think it is really promising to see that it's growing, even, you know, those kind of, um, those areas that are considered novel are certainly growing as well.
1: So Asa, as a non-scientist, but steeped in the CDR, like culture and business and all of that, do you think what what was reflected in the science is what you see in like the everyday CDR industry and the world at large?
2: Yeah, I mean, like Jane said, it is a little hard at times to be in sort of a bubble, reading certain news outlets or even certain online groups and trying to ascertain, you know, is this real? Like, I see people talking about it at COP. I see, you know, billion-dollar announcements, you know, the president of the United States talking about it. So it's obvious that something is bubbling. But like Jane was saying, what we really want to see is the quantitative findings about what's being deployed, what's actually happening on the ground, because it seems like it's a field. And this report sort of validates this where there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of research. I think they there was one graph that I saw that said that in AR6, there were 23,000 pieces of scientific research, 23,000 papers, I guess, about carbon removal. And that's a lot. I mean, obviously, a lot of those are about forestry, soil, things that would kind of be studying anyway, even if would, would BB studied anyway, even if the phrase carbon removal never existed. Um, so yeah, I think this this report, my kind of takeaway was it kind of confirmed what I think we, we, what a lot of people probably think who follow carbon removal. You know, there's a lot of positive developments happening, but there are big gaps still and time is short. So maybe we all probably knew that before this report came out, but to have some very knowledgeable people look at the uh look at the the data out there evaluate the research find you know have that be the finding i think yeah kind of confirms what what uh i probably thought about carbon removal so good good to have that uh, affirmation i guess
0: here like i will just say two things the first is that feeling as an academic that you can never catch up on the literature um it feels very validating to me uh, to see this. Cause I'm like, okay, like I can never catch up because literally like I can't read two to five times more per day. Like my time isn't growing exponentially. Um, so that's like good personal validation. And the other thing that I have noticed, and this is more like in the climate change uh, and soil carbon soil science literature is that the terminology of carbon dioxide removal is being applied to studies that we were doing before under a different sort of banner. So part of this, I think, is also artificial inflation. Like we were already studying sort of the transformation of carbon molecules in the soil under the guise of just understanding fundamentally what's happening, understanding how different management affects soil function. And now we can do that under the banner of climate change. And there are lots of different reasons why folks might want to do that from sort of the personal wanting to like align your work with your personal values to sort of the funding, the fact that now there's funding for climate change, all of a sudden gives us Uh, you know, the ability to put climate change into our research in ways that we haven't been able to before. So I suspect some of this is artificially inflated. So one of the interesting things
1: that the authors found was that only 3% of CDR research is in the social sciences. I mean, I think intuitively, it kind of makes sense because the hard sciences drive the tech. But as we've talked about a lot, you can't implement CDR solutions without the communities that will be hosting these solutions, if you will, accepting them. So um, I'm curious, Jane, what do you make of this? Because I know how passionate you are about this subject. And how do you think this knowledge gap, one, affects the implementation of CDR approaches and how do academics rectify that problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. As a as a wannabe social scientist, this is a thing that I really think about a lot. And I went to a lecture uh, last night by Al- um, Catherine Wilkinson, who is the one of the authors of the All We Can Save uh, book and project and Drawdown Solutions as well. So she kind of asked the audience this question, like, when you think about climate change and you think about climate change solutions, what comes to mind first? And it was interesting because for me, in my mind, I saw people. And I wonder sort of based on the audience and your own personal kind of leanings, what are the things that you see? I guess, what do you see audience when you think about climate change solutions? For me, it starts and ends with people. This is intricately a people problem. It's, you know, the, it's fundamentally what we decide to do and how we do it. And so the fact that only 3% of the research is in the social sciences is a really huge alarm bell because we can't do any of this without understanding the fundamental sort of dynamics of how people interact with each other, with their environment, Um, we can't sort of technology our way out of this problem. And I think a lot of the people that are coming into this space are really excited about solutions, but also really have a technocratic approach to how they think about the world. Um, And I think that's fine. And that's, you know, it's good to understand our own biases. But if we don't address the people problem, if we don't understand what people are going to be doing, how they're going to make decisions. None of this really is going to be scalable. So I think it's a huge limitation today for scaling CDR.
1: Asa, I'm kind of curious. Um, you live in California, which I think is a fairly climate sophisticated, if you will, state. What's your usual interaction when people, when you mention carpet removal to like your friends and family, do they know what you're talking about? Or is it kind of like, what is that?
2: Yes. No, they don't know what I'm talking about. And maybe in the last couple of years, it, the, the the phrase has kind of gotten out there a little bit and people have a bit of an understanding of it. Um. And there's also a big terminology issue in terms of is it carbon capture? Is it related to because we have a big, like long standing political fight here in California over point source carbon capture at power plants and industrial facilities, because we have a lot of local environmental groups or environmental justice groups who have put up a lot of resistance to state, um, the cap and trade system we have here, which allows, has allowed for some carbon capture, um, which is great to capture that carbon, but it, in the views of some of these groups is a lifeline to, uh, facilities that cause other forms of pollution that are detrimental to their, to themselves. So it because we have that long-standing fight. And for other reasons, I think there's a bit of skepticism. Obviously, we're a liberal state. So a lot of the people um, and where I happen to live in the Bay Area, a lot of the people that I talk to fall more on that side of things. Um, So there's skepticism, you know, is this going to delay emissions reductions? But because like you said, it is a climate, we like to think we're doing a lot, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, You know, people want solutions. And I think, you know, we also have a tech orientation and so people there's a lot of interest also in you know tech technological solutions and we find that a lot of the carbon removal startups are located here in the bay area um so i would say mixed bag but like um like may have been found in this report um public knowledge and public acceptance is 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 maybe you could say shades of positive but certainly not set in stone. And there's a lot of, um, uh, people don't have, most people don't feel strongly one way or the other, and they're out. It's possible to be convinced. And so like Jane said, that this is a big problem highlighted in this report, this 3% of the studies being social sciences to me, I agree. This is a, this is like one of the big red flags for me in this report. I mean, we all know there's not enough government support for carbon removal. That wasn't news, but this was kind of like, Whoa, that's a problem because we, we're going to talk about Vera and the Guardian report in a second. You know, there's a lot of issues there about carbon project. And this isn't new either. Carbon projects having issues with uh, local communities, forestry projects. There was an article recently about the Project Bison DAC plant, which I know a lot of people are excited about and their work in their community, you know, in the community they're trying to go into in Wyoming. A lot of uncertainty there among the population, according to at least one reporter. So, I mean, come on, like this is at, this is all going to happen where people live. I mean, or mostly, you know, and people, local people are going to be employed or affected negatively. And we, it's like, this is the barrier that we need to like be so laser focused on as a field, I think, to make people feel like this is a benefit. Long story short, this is a problem. We need to, we need to get social scientists involved and excited about figuring out how we can remove carbon from the atmosphere and have it be a good thing because otherwise it's not going to happen even if the technology is great.
0: Well, this is something I've been wondering about. Maybe like we get to ask Radhika a question. Um, Yeah, let's do it. Every once in a while. We know social science is important from sort of the knowledge generation and understanding and sort of helping us be systems thinkers in a really holistic way. But you're trying to build and and, um, build a profitable company and so, how does the kind of science and knowledge that social sciences deliver impact what you're doing when you're building a company for profit? Yeah, even if you have a you know a a broader climate mission.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a question I ponder all the time. It's something I also ask all my guests, right? Uh, that I think have meaningful insights, like how do you engage with the community? I think for a company like Nori, we have two different kind of roles we play. So we work directly with farmers, as you know, and there's a whole social science aspect of that on how you engage, how you talk to them, how you make them feel part of something of the process. And, and that's really down to individual relationships. And I think that's very intuitive for our, like, because we, those are like accounts that we're managing, but there is this broader, not that we're still trying to figure out on how you engage with farmers at a higher level, help them understand the benefits of what they're doing, help them transition. And, you know, I think a lot, a big thesis has been like, it's just about the money. And I'm less and less thinking that as um, I see the reaction of farmers. I think it's so much bigger than that. It's about identity. It's about their soil health. It's about so many other things. So like trying to figure that out is one piece of the social science. And then the second piece that I think about a lot is when we start engaging more with directly with CDR companies, the more technologically focused, engineering focused. And I think from a Nori perspective, we're just going to have to use the best social science to figure out which companies to engage and partner with. Um, it's something actually I've talked to Holly Jean Buck about my our friend um but you know, how do you engage with companies that are doing the meaningful type of community outreach? How do you engage with companies that are um, truly trying to build products that the are beneficial to the people where they are being built um and And it's not just because I it's touchy-feely and it's a good thing. It's also because I think it makes smart business because uncertainty makes things less good and brings more friction to business. And the more certainty we have that projects will happen, that communities will embrace it, that litigation won't happen, the better those projects are. And so I'm looking forward to the development of some of the social sciences to help us identify that. You know, I was, struck by that Project Bison article because they use the word bison and that was like very um, inflammatory to the community. I would have never thought of that but why the people building it didn't like know that before they named something and why the people that they engaged with in the state of Wyoming didn't realize that I think raised some red flags. So the other thing that I'm really interested in is how we develop processes and procedures that actually meaningfully engage with the community. And this comes from my time in working in the government rather than performatively engage with the community. And, um, you know, whatever companies we partner with, I hope that we can have a conversation and be part of that development process.
0: I feel like in this, in, in this business framing, which I'm not a business person uh, at all, Um, it's interesting because one frame that I think makes sense and where social science is really critical is sort of risk assessment and de-risking. And I don't think people take that really seriously and you can have the best technology or the best sort of approach in the world, but if you haven't de-risked the, or addressed the risk associated with the human dimension, um, or can't even describe it's sort of, if it's contours adequately, then, your project isn't really going to succeed. So from a business function perspective, I feel like this is the kind of risk assessment that people would want to, one, fund and two, engage with. I can yeah. agree with more, Jane.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Susan says on our business shows, she has some phrase about uncertainty is the enemy of liquidity.
1: Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Susan, if I can get
2: that right. But like in layman's terms for myself, I figured out that she means, uncertainty means people aren't going to invest in your, situation in your project. So Mm -hmm. we need certainty to feel like these projects not only work scientifically, but work on the ground. And that's, what's going to get companies, governments, and whoever else to invest in this stuff.
0: Although like certainty that is like, uh, I don't know how to say credible, rigorous, because lots of startups come into the room with all kinds of uh, certainty that is being communicated, but isn't real, right? So a lot of what I take issue with are startups that are like really bringing lots of technology and technology speak and venture back sort of speak into the space um, and claim a lot of certainty, but it's not real from a climate benefits perspective. And we can talk about that when we talk about the Guardian article and why those things actually have to be real um, and why they're not. Yeah,
1: so when I think about certainty in this situation separate from the science. I'm just thinking about the certainty of having communities who are embracing what is being built, because the type of uncertainty I'm thinking about is stopping building litigation that prevents things from moving forward and your dollars basically not going to work for what they're supposed to, but for, you know, defending. And that can all be properly addressed if the social sciences around these projects is properly understood, I think. And then the uncertainty around the tech, it's like a whole nother piece that has to be thought about in a completely, I think, different way. But I'm going to pivot us to forestry. I've talked enough. I've done my one question for the next few months. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I want to talk about the fact that one of the major findings from this latest report is that um, the most current most current CDR comes from forests, with about two gigatons per year being removed via managed forests globally. So, Jane, what did you think about just generically the locations and projects responsible for capturing that much carbon dioxide? And there are, speaking of uncertainties, uncertainties that should be considered.
0: Yeah, um, I... I don't think I I my read of the report was deep enough to remember specific locations. Um, although I think um, the they do point out that areas that continue to be understudied in this context are tend to be in the global south, um, and so I suspect that the the data paucity for those areas means that a lot of the data that they're accounting for are are places we know a lot more about. For example, parts of Asia, North America, and Europe um so in terms of like sort of geographic uh context of where these projects are taking place um i i suspect that they are uh, the the major meaningful sort of carbon removal in in forestry is happening in tropical forests uh and a lot of that is probably from uh delaying or avoiding deforestation or planting new forests where deforestation has occurred uh, but one of the things that really struck me about their their finding, though most of the CDR is happening in that sort of afforestation and reforestation spaces, it's interesting because there's a huge discrepancy between the the methods that they're using and the numbers they come up with for how much CDR is actually happening, relative to what national determined contribution documents sort of hint at um, in terms of com- how much can be removed per year um, on land and also other kind of what they're calling bookkeeping models or models that are putting the um, direct removals in forests somewhere in between. And so um, national determined contributions data or like basically uh, emission inventories that c- countries are conducting are putting those uh, removals much, much higher, like two to three times higher than what this particular report is is um, is able to estimate. It's a really big difference, and I think it's partly a couple of problems that they point out. Uh, One is that the indirect emission reductions or removals are accounted for by uh, nationally determined contributions in a way that may be problematic and may actually be double counting. And so if you remove those indirect effects and you just focus specifically on the carbon that is being removed by live biomass, um, then that number becomes a lot lower. Um, and then the other thing they point out, and this they haven't really been able to address in this study or in any others that I've seen, is sort of the the difference in timing between when the carbon is being removed from the atmosphere relative to sort of the storage timelines or what's happening to that carbon ultimately. Either it's like ending up in a storage uh, situation, or it is being uh, is being put into a product that is eventually going to release it back into the atmosphere, and the timing of of that delay and release into the atmosphere matters a lot, and it's not really being accounted for in these models. So um, the it's interesting that the projects responsible for capturing that carbon, you know, are there's such a discrepancy between our different estimation methods. Um, for these parts. same, I mean, the same land area, basically.
1: Yeah, forestry is. Seems so straightforward, and then it always gets more complicated, as all natural sciences should and tend to, Um, which makes me want to pivot to The Guardian, which um, I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast saw their recent um, article where they covered some new research that found more than 90% of the carbon offsets on the platform of VERA didn't lead to actual carbon removal. These are forestry offsets. Vera has disputed the findings and, and says it's, um, you know, not a, a measurement issue, but a baseline issue. Anywho, the bottom line is that this is not the first time that car- forestry carbon offsets have been questioned. We talk about this all the time. So, Asa, I'm going to start with you again as a person who's more like the man on the street. What have you seen as the reaction to this report and how are people within the CDR community you know thinking about it
2: i mean it's brutal you know this is bad news for carbon removal for forest carbon for carbon offsets for climate the climate fight like things would be we'd be a lot better off if we could have a trustworthy way to get cheap carbon offsets for all the money that wants to go into carbon offsets that actually offset carbon or at least you know pull down some amount of carbon and you know like you said vera did have their dispute and I just transparently am not knowledge not knowledgeable in this area enough to really compare the two arguments and say that one is more convincing to me but um I do think you know it wasn't just the Guardian reporters they were that that found this this was based on I think two different studies by you know forest scientists and I think maybe there's a baseline issue that could account for some difference and I think you know perfection should not be the enemy of the good, but 92% difference is a lot. And if I was Vera, they're not happy. I can only imagine they're not happy that they had, you know, legit scientists come in and say that their process isn't um, working. That's not a good, that's not good news. Even if they say there's a baseline issue. I don't, I mean, can a baseline issue explain 92%? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make anyone mad, but it seems this, to me, this seems like bad result and it just points out there's so much room for improvement even in the field the the segment of you know what we call carbon removal or our voluntary offset markets that's the most established that has 99 of you know the money like jane was saying the ndc's like this stuff is built in to our climate um you know governance globally like we really would like this to work even though it's not all of the carbon removal we'll need so it's tricky. I don't know what to I mean, yeah, I think there's some people who are, you know, coming more to the defense of Vera. Um, and I think that's fair. And like Susan was saying in our episode last week, um, you know, it's a nonprofit. There's a lot of smart people with great intentions working on it. So I wouldn't wanna I wouldn't wanna say anything other than that, but um, you know, it's points to the quote MRV challenge that we find with all this. Carbon removal, And it's a little dispiriting that even the one that, you know, we want to believe in, and there's so much money going towards, um, isn't really pulling down CO2. And it makes you wonder what else that money should go to and um, maybe you just improved MRV for forestry. I don't know. But, you know, there was a a report from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which is one of the places I go to explain all this complicated ec- economic stuff, because it's hard to understand sometimes. And they this article which came out on January twenty third, so after the Guardian article, the headlines: carbon offset market could reach one trillion with right rules, and they're basically saying that you know there's a lot of doubts about carbon uh, carbon markets because of all the bad headlines. This is not the first one, and that you can imagine being some sustainability coordinator, whoever's in the you know office of some big corporation, and they want to buy carbon offsets. They want to at least do something in terms of climate, even though they probably should be reducing their emissions. But that's another story. Uh, or that is uh, the story. I don't know.
0: I was going to say, no, that is this story. That is not another story. We're in the same freaking story.
2: (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. So, you know, they want to do it, but they see these headlines too. And every one of these reports and headlines about forestry that comes out, you know, probably gives pause to um, people who want to dump money into this whole concept. You know, we have this capitalist system we live in. Uh, We're not getting any mandated reductions from any corporations in, in much of the world that I know of. So this is, how it's happening right now. And, um, you know, they basically they're saying, if the right rules exist, and if the right, um, you know, guardrails exist, like there's a lot of money that can go into carbon markets. And whether or not you think that's the perfect answer, that can definitely do a lot of good, I think, in the short term. And according to this report, we're talking about most of the carbon removal we're going to have up until 2050 is going to be natural natural solutions you know sorry for the you know don't want to go down that road either but it's going to be from forestry and soil so we need to get this right so I don't know this maybe it's not really a groundbreaking observation but um there's a lot of money that can go into this if you know it gets figured out how to how to do it right so
0: gosh there's a lot of money going into this even though it's being done wrong
1: yeah so. right hey, I, that's that's where I want to leave it with you like when you look at this not only the report where you were talking about how difficult the accounting was within even a rigorous report, but also then this Guardian piece, how do you think about forest offsetting programs just from a purely scientific perspective? Are there, what what could be improved? What yeah. should we
0: be doing? Um, so I've, as Asa said, this is not the first time that inconsistencies, and that's just a really nice way of saying it, in <laughs> carbon offset projects in general and forestry crop projects specifically because they've been around longer and there's a lot of sort of uh transacted uh crediting and transacted retirement that have occurred so we can look back so a lot of these projects haven't met the sort of the climate requirements and rigor that we would like for them to actually be able to offset what we know are real emissions right so the issue is that they're offsetting they're being used to uh Justify or offset emissions that are happening for reals, and yes, none of these entities really in the voluntary market are being regulated, uh, and they're voluntarily choosing to do this, but they're not really voluntarily choosing, right? They're trying, they're they're being pressured by their stakeholders, their stockholders, their customers, etc., to do something about climate change, and this is what they've chosen to do. They have other choices. Um, this is the buying offsets is a choice that is being made. Um, that is all to say carbon offsets have been a problem for a long time. There's a lar- large body of literature that kind of points to these projects not meeting their their stated mission of climate mitigation. This is kind of the latest headline. There were many headlines a couple of years ago about several Nature Conservancy projects that were also sort of like basically not meeting basic rules of additionality. Uh, in this case, these projects were not meeting rules of additionality or counterfactual. There uh, and in many cases, there continued to be deforestation and projects that were supposed to like be halting deforestation. Um So not surprised is what I would say. And I think, in my mind, what what needs to happen. So we have a couple of choices. We can try to sort of remedy this carbon finance carbon markets approach, offsetting approach to try to, uh, as ASA was saying, put better guardrails in place uh, because we're really committed to this being the solution. So basically we could just we just need to capitalist capitalist harder, more, more capitalism harder, whatever that is, more of that, or we could think about regulating these emitting entities and we know there isn't an appetite for that. but in reality, um you know the carrot or the stick, I tend to think the stick works pretty well. So, um, and then the other option is to decouple sort of the things that we're doing to protect forests, which we have to do, and lots of sort of other things that forests give us, biodiversity, protection, um, water and air, clean clean air, clean water, sort of like places that are meaningful for lots of reasons, decoupling that from the carbon uh, services in quotes delivered, I think could be really helpful. Now, people say we need to protect these places, and carbon finance is the only way we have to do that. And I think that's the sort of the cynical, unfortunate reality. But we could also make a different choice and decoupling our need to protect forests from our need to address climate and carbon pollution. We could we could choose to do that too, right? That is a policy choice, and we are people. People get to make choices. And if we did that, then companies could certainly have budgets in place to address their broader sort of sustainability and being a good steward in the world. Um, license to operate is another way to say it. And they could decouple the, that that finance mechanism from their sort of what they're doing to actually address carbon pollution. Um, and yes, there are benefits to protecting forests that may have carbon outcomes, but in in a system where we can't actually even measure that very well, I think it's really hard to tie them together. Um, We get into a situation where we have more sort of guardian articles pointing out all the different ways that these carbon projects are falling short. Um, Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, uh, I love that scientists are doing this work and are are like going in and actually pushing these registries. And I'm gonna put nonprofit in quotations because there are certainly profit mechanisms at play even for VERA um, that make them not be an impartial actor in this space. Um, so even though they're legally a nonprofit, they certainly are motivated by money, um, first and foremost in this case.
1: Yeah. I I think Jane, you put it very well when you talked about the benefits of the forests and carbon just being one amongst many and, and decoupling it Um, it may be where we need to go because the current system certainly seems to be, it's like, you know, fool me once, fool me twice kind of thing. Like how many times do we see the same story, but I want to end on some good news and I'm going to let Asa do it today because, you know, he's our special guest. So, and he found the article, so (laughs) our Twitter thread, So, Asa, please tell us the good news.
2: Sure. Sure. I would love to, um, Okay, so the good news for this week is new paper that has found that the um, future demand for clean electricity um, will can be built with the current materials that we have access to um, and doing so will not break our carbon budgets. And there's a great tweet thread from Zeke Housefather on Twitter that we'll link to in the show notes that basically finds that Yeah, there is. um, Given even given different scenarios, um, there's enough of the materials, minerals, et cetera, to build out all the clean electricity we need, and uh, doing so will not actually the actual building of it won't actually cause so much uh, carbon emissions that that also that build out also um, blows up our carbon budget. So obviously, it's a huge topic of discussion. But this paper is good news and we will link it in the show notes so everyone can take a look and see what you think. And yeah, hopefully we keep the energy transition going.
0: All right. Go team. So
1: Jane, as always, thank you for being here this month. I appreciate it. Asa, thank you for jumping in at the last second today. Appreciate that. And Thanks to for having our me. Uh, we look forward to next week when we will be talking about policy. Yeah, right. and
0: Shannon Valley, Dr. Shannon Valley, you were missed. We can't wait to talk to you again next month. Next month. Yeah. yeah.
2: And make sure to be here, or else our audience is gonna have to listen to me again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are you're amazing, Lisa. All you. right, thanks guys. Bye. Thanks.
0: thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom.